My name is Hannah. My pronouns are she, her. I grew up Christian, and overall, I would say it was a positive experience and a great foundation for my teenage and young adult years. I embraced my faith and the service and study streams that were part of my Christian upbringing and formal education. I was rooted in biblical principles and practices which reinforced my actions and choices. My 20s were filled with deep study of the Bible and theology and international service trips. I think some of the drive to do this was from having a need to connect with Jesus while serving him and learning more about him. It was mostly bliss until I started deconstructing my faith, doctrine, and what it means to follow Jesus. I found myself questioning what I thought was the biblical approach to sexuality and gender. What I knew to be true about the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed was coming, his radical welcome and acceptance, and the value of loving our neighbors didn't fit within the box of gender and sexuality I was taught. So I had to tear down that box. This was true for other parts of my beloved faith. My understanding of Jesus' teachings and life didn't fit in the box of how my Christian brothers and sisters saw politics, poverty, or even what a meaningful life was. Those boxes got torn down too. For the last few years, I've been left with a lot of torn down boxes, a lot of doubt, a lot of apathy. I've had to sit still and stop doing. My relationship with Jesus has changed too from serving and studying him, um, to listening to him, living with him, and seeing the world as he sees it. Right now, I find comfort in him as a companion, guide, and co-worker, rather than prophet, priest, king, fulfillment of the law. Jesus has stayed with me as all my boxes got torn down. He was bigger than the boxes, it turns out. All right, I'm going to share a poem, and I'm really nervous because it's a vulnerable thing to do, but I feel like it relates to kind of why Jesus. It's called You Called It Good. Tiny hands pried away from security and love are dragged into fear. Bars holding in babies who wail for warmth. Wide-eyed strangers charged with maintaining order, law and order. Escapé de la violencia solo para encontrar un nuevo terror. You called it good? Shaking hands grasp the garbage bag full of her world. Cast away hand-me-downs and tokens from her first home. Along with her heart, it is dragged from the disrupted house. Starting over, new. Chaos in her heart. Chaos in her hands that push away the pain. Too much, can't handle not enough. She searches for home but doesn't know what to look for. The tokens are too vague and the memories too chaotic. Too much. Not enough. Never enough. Shame and sorrow are added to the bag of burdens as she's directed to start again. You called it good? Whirring and wailing explosions. Dust swells. Humans die. Loving hands are pried away from tiny bodies. All that is heard is wailing. Tears swell in longing eyes that cascade down dirty, grieved faces. Blood and water mixed together to make mud on the wounded ground, also a victim of violence. You called it good? In the beginning, there was no shame, only shalom. Walking together in the forest of life with you, you called it good. 
Then deception came and traded freedom for bondage, shame, fear, violence, hatred. You said someone would be coming, someone you called good. Worn sandals are removed by holy hands, gently wiping the dirt away, 12 times. A shamed woman drenches your head and your feet with honor. You host the Seder and give a homily, blessing your sisters, your brothers, and your father. Later, sweat would be as drops of blood, chaos. Forcefully, you would be taken for 30 silver coins. 13 counts of being forsaken. That cup was not taken from you. Separated from your father, alone. Shame displayed in mockery and discarded saliva. Violence wrecked your body and your soul. And then pierced. Pierced for the wailing. Pierced for the chaos. Pierced for the separation. Pierced for the hope of shalom that runs out in streams of water and blood. Jesus declared it was finished so it could be called good again. That's why Jesus for me. Thank you. We are in the middle of our series uh, in, on the fruits of the Spirit. We're actually uh, a little towards the, uh, the beginning of that series. So we will, let's jump into it. We'll use the, the text that we've been using as a basis for uh, the discussion, the text where the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, describes the fruits of the Spirit. So just to refresh your memory, if you've been uh, following along in this series, uh, Paul says, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the, the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, enjoying one another. So the one we're going to do today uh, is the second one that's listed, which is joy. Uh, so some of you who have been here for a while may know one of our daughters uh, is JJ, but perhaps fewer of you know that the second J in JJ stands for joy. And who would I be, what kind of a child namer would I be? If I couldn't explain to you the significance of naming your child Joy, um, of course, a lot of it comes from just our love of naming children after the fruits of the Spirit. The short list was uh, Junia self-control, Octar. <laughs> but we went with Joy better. Had a, had a better ring to it. But um, often when, uh, when we talk about Joy to each other, um, and even if you, know, you, you operate from kind of basic definitions that we have, it tends to be... Um, happiness, an intense happiness. That's kind of how, how we often talk about it. And in practice, that also means it's like, um, we often think of like intense happiness. It's like a strong feeling of pleasure, like something that it feels really good or being in a state where, where things uh, feel really good to you. And when we then layer that kind of definition onto people like the Apostle Paul saying that they have joy uh, in the Lord, they can rejoice because they know Jesus, then we kind of end up in many situations where you feel bad as a follower of Jesus 
If you don't feel joy at any time, or if you're not feeling a kind of uh, happiness uh, that goes along with this, it often goes, you know, either in your mind or you literally have people saying to you, oh, what, what, how can you have anxiety or depression after all Jesus has done for you, right? Like, that's, that's the idea. And again, you may say, like, oh, I know that's absurd. But I think a lot of times... You might still walk around with that dialogue in your mind, that, that that's what's, uh, you know, that, that's really what joy means, and if I don't have it, there must be something wrong with me or something wrong with my faith. Um, and it's often even, it's the people who tell you that, uh, you know, who, who give you that kind of, so you should be happy because of all that Jesus has done for you, who many times are the ones who seem to be almost like compensating for something going on. Like, you know, you should, you should really be happy. It's the kind of thing where they're like, they're telling you, you should be happy. Their lips say you should be happy, but their eyes terrify me. That's, that's often uh, how it's going. It's almost, it's like, uh, you know, it's, let's come up with a better way way of thinking about joy, one that makes sense of the, the full range of feelings that you may have uh, in your journey following Jesus. So one of the things that we will walk through today is to move away from this idea of, of joy as happiness or, or an intense feeling of pleasure. Um, we're going to talk about how it's, it's not happiness, and it's not even a feeling, really. It's a choice. It's a bold declaration at that. So we'll, we'll go through it. It's actually, uh, it's fitting that we're unpacking how the Apostle Paul uses the, uh, describes joy uh, in Galatians because almost half of the mentions of joy in the New Testament come from the Apostle Paul. Kind of his thing in terms of the, the broad voices that we hear uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, many of his most famous mentions of joy come from his letter to the church in Philippi, which he wrote from prison. So uh, this actually might make you wonder, like, was he saying all that joy stuff in prison? Because he's compensating, like the people that we saw before. It's like, you talk about it the most when you don't have it. But uh, I think that when you think about and you, you reflect on where Paul wrote that letter from, where he was in in life, and him talking about joy in the way that he does, it really should help solidify for you that whatever that word means, it can't mean happiness uh, or like an intense feeling of pleasure because that's not the situation that Paul was in uh, when he was in prison or when he even reflects on the things that he has um, uh, suffered in the name of Jesus. But it does raise, you know, the way that Paul uses joy in Philippians uh, actually provides a good context to raise that question. Like, what is Paul so joyful about? Like when he talks about joy, what does he mean? So let's do that. We're, let's use Philippians as kind of like a baseline for how the Apostle Paul talks about joy. We can use that to keep in mind as we think about joy as a fruit of the Spirit, where Paul mentions it in Galatians. So towards the uh, end of the letter of Philippians, in a, like a type of summary statement, here is what, what Paul says. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now notice uh, one thing up front in the way that Paul talks about joy here is that 
joy for him cannot mean everything is great or that everything is the way that it should be because he gives actually two commands right next to each other. One, he says, rejoice. And all right along with that, he says, and petition to God um, and make your, make your requests known to God. So that, uh, to, to be encouraged to make your petition or request known to God uh, inherently means that there is something about the world that is not how it ought to be, and you need to do something about that, and God is working with you to do something about that. They go hand in hand. Rejoicing in the Lord does not mean that everything is okay, but it does mean that God is with you while you are dealing with it. Um, another way we often get tripped up uh, in the way that we are uh, articulating joy, uh, the way Paul uses it, is so we say, okay, so here, maybe it's not like uh, feeling happy uh, in that moment. And that, the, you know, maybe I'll concede that the, like it, it uh, inherently captures that the world isn't how it ought to be. But uh, Paul has what his joy here is a positive mental attitude, right? It's the idea that he is choosing to be optimistic in the face of his time uh, in prison. It's almost as if he could, with, like, with a positive attitude, he could uh, manifest himself like out of prison. It's just a matter of time. If Paul had enough joy, it'll all work itself out. Um, a lot of times we, we kind of think of that. We kind of impute this positive mental attitude um, vibe onto the passage itself because of the, the passage that, or the verse that comes up just a little bit later in this context that is one of the, the most famous and I think one of the most misunderstood uh, verses of all time is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the idea is that Paul, Paul is saying like, oh, I, I can survive prison because I can, do any, I, can, I can accomplish anything with my attitude in Jesus. Uh, if you spend any time in uh, sports or gyms in any way, you've probably seen this passage everywhere. That's actually most, my most common experience with this passage in my life was actually seeing it uh, put up in Christian uh, gyms. So, so this is actually how the passage most often appears to you. Beautifully woven artwork on the wall uh, in a gym. I, by the way, grew up as a Muslim uh, in this country, and it's a testament of how hard I was willing to ball that uh, I spent so much time in Christian gyms to be able to see these kinds of passages. Allah led me to play ball in, in these places, and I'm, I'm be uh, better for it. But I do remember always seeing that, thinking, like, what is, like, does that mean you can, like, lift harder with Jesus? Like, that, that's, that must be what it's talking about. Um, and it is very much used, again, like if, if you like talk to a lot of athletes who use this verse as inspiration, it very much is often used as a positive mental attitude kind of thing, like that they, they gain inspiration from this and it empowers them to accomplish great things. There, there is um, a phenomenon in sports that we are blessed with uh, in the Bay Area called the Golden State Warriors and, and Steph Curry <laughs> that kind of gets wrapped up in these kinds of discussions because uh, Steph Curry is the star for the, the Warriors, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He, he is known, has a reputation in the league for playing with joy, with, without precedent. This is a description that is often given of him. Documentaries kind of take this angle, trying to dissect what's going on. And Steph Curry is in, you know, he's uh, outspoken about uh, his faith in Jesus. And he does 
often use the passage that we just talked about uh, as a source of strength uh, in his life. Um, so, so much so like to the point where when uh, bad things do happen uh, to him, you know, he could get trolled by outlets saying like, oh, look, you know, look at Steph Curry, just like all the other athletes who don't understand the context of that passage. But here's the thing. Steph Curry has actually talked about like how he understands or interprets that passage. So here's what he shared. He said, being a Christian athlete doesn't mean praying for your team to win. God doesn't give an edge to those who pray over those who don't. Hard work does that. Being a Christian means competing for Christ in a way which you always give your all for him and win or lose. You thank him for the ability and opportunity to play. It means giving all the glory to God no matter the outcome because you trust in his plans for you. That understanding of the context actually seems basically right to me. And even if it was wrong, I wouldn't say anything about it because I love him. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it, in this case, it, you know, it, he is right on. In fact, like, I think that is actually taking very well from the surrounding context in Philippians. So just a few verses around the verse that we just talked about. Here's what Paul says. For I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? So this is not about having a positive mental attitude to increase the, the positive experiences that you have in your life. It is a choice that you make uh, about how to handle the experiences that you encounter. There is, um, uh, you know, for, for us too, I think we often think of like, athletes are people who have achieved a lot, uh, like people in high performance cultures. You know, that probably doesn't sound anything at all uh, familiar to you in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley. Whereas the, the attitude is, you know, um, really like, I can be content or I will be happy or I'll have joy when I you can insert anything you want there when you achieve the next thing that is eluding you. So much of, of how a lot of us think about success these days really is shaped by happiness will come when. And then when you find yourself there, uh, it's not as happy as you thought it would be. And it ends up being uh, a, a fool's errand uh, in many ways. There is a perspective here that Paul is giving that allows you to escape that kind of mentality that uh, ends often puts us in very toxic places. Uh, Rachel Held Evans uh, explained this really well, where she talks about the idea of the God of pots and pans, the God of the little things, the God of the mundane. She says, if God is the God of all pots and pans, then he is also the God of all shovels and computers and paints and assembly lines and executive offices and classrooms. Peace and joy belong not to the woman who finds the right vocation, but to the woman who finds God in any vocation, who looks for the divine around every corner. That too, I think, is a perspective that the Apostle Paul is channeling here. Now, this does raise the, the question that, that we have been talking about where, um, you know, how does, how does Christ give Paul the strength to uh, have this joy? If it's not talking about just uh, like achieving more, um, what, is, what is this strength that, that Paul is talking about? Where does it come from? I think it, it, uh, the answer actually occurs. Paul gives us the answer um, in this surrounding context where he talks about joy. He says, the Lord is near. That is the phrase that he says uh, can sh that shows the source of his strength. 
Now, that might not be intuitive, right? You hear that and you're like, okay, does he mean that uh, the Lord feels near to him, like the Lord is near to him in his heart, and that's where he gets joy from? And I don't think that that is actually what, um, what Paul means here when he says the Lord is near. And I think that it helps us to clarify exactly what he's talking about by putting Paul in dialogue with another voice in the Bible that also talks about joy quite a bit. And in putting these two voices in dialogue with each other, I think it actually becomes very clear not only just what Paul means when he says the Lord is near, but how that relates to the joy that he experiences and how that can be something that gives him strength uh, in uh, no matter what situation he finds himself in. So here are the, the, the two dialogue partners. This is the preacher uh, versus the Paul. So the preacher is actually, that is the name of the, the voice, the primary voice that occurs in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. So uh, Ecclesiastes, you may recall, we just uh, did a series on this here at Spark where we preached through the wisdom literature. So Ecclesiastes was one of the books in the wisdom literature. There is... Um, and there's a, a voice within that book that uh, speaks about many things. Um, the, the main idea is that the preacher, the voice that's there, is, uh, um, is in search for wisdom, meaning, and purpose. Uh, in fact, um, like right from the start uh, of the book, as soon as the preacher begins speaking, one of the first things he says, famous phrase from the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Which is like, oh, so that person talks about joy a lot? He does. And so this, is a, this tension that's occurring is exactly the kind of thing that we should work through. So here is one of the most famous phrases that kind of get brought up in discussions that quote Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes, after you know, doing this um, thorough survey of the different experiences that humanity encounters, says, so I saw that there is nothing better than that all should enjoy their work, for that is their lot. Often you will hear this passage get brought up to say like, yeah, right, like, you know, you work hard, take joy in the little things, really that's what life is all about. After all, that's what Ecclesiastes is saying. And I think because many times we are, uh, we're, we're trying so hard to make uh, all the different perspectives in the Bible speak with one voice, we blunt the, uh, the underlying logic um, that uh, often the author themselves, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, uh, is advocating for. So, and then when we do that, we actually kind of miss the broader point that Ecclesiastes is making and the way that the Apostle Paul is dialoguing with a perspective like this. So you see this passage, you might say, oh, that seems like a very, like, yeah, seems like a very normal, happy thing to say. Let's go back uh, just a few verses and understand the context of where this conclusion is coming from. Here the preacher says, I said to myself with regard to humans that God is testing them to show that they are but animals. For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and humans have no advantage over the animals for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all turn to dust again. Who knows whether the human spirit goes upward and the spirit of animals goes downward to the earth. Well, that's very joyful, isn't it? And then he says, so I saw that there is nothing better than that all should enjoy their work for that is their lot. Who can bring them to see what happens uh, after them? 
You know, make no mistake, this is not optimism. This is resignation. That's where his joy is coming from. He's saying life is short, it's painful, then you die, and that's it. So you might as well enjoy the ride along the way. Uh, it numbs the pain of your meaningless existence. That is, that's what he is saying. Uh, earlier, um, in part of his uh, survey of uh, human experience, he actually, one of the big arguments that he gives for the meaninglessness of the world is he looks at all of the injustice and oppression that exists in the world, and he sees that as capricious or arbitrary or unfair. And that's part of what drives him towards this conclusion that none of this can mean anything. And then this is where, where he lands. Is that where Paul's joy emanates from? Um, Ecclesiastes' words, put the, they put the purposeless joy of the preacher in sharp contrast with what's a more purpose-driven joy that comes from Paul, where the preacher resigns and rhetorically asks, uh, who can see what will happen after? Meaning, like, n- none of us can. There's nothing there. Um, Paul, by contrast, believes that something has brought him to see what will happen after. Paul believes something has brought him to see something that happens after that changes everything for him. The clearest articulation of where Paul would uh, converge and part ways with the preacher comes in his own uh, lengthy reflection on Jesus and the resurrection in his letter to the church in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians, in a discussion about the nature of Jesus' resurrection, here's what Paul says, and he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified of God that he raised Christ. Later he says, If for this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people uh, most to be pitied. So he is actually, do you see where the dialogue is occurring with Ecclesiastes? He's operating on the assumption that if if it's true, that there, it really is all meaningless, there's nothing that happens afterwards, uh, then then he will say, um, a little bit after, he'll say, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That part sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? But Paul is exactly saying that that is not the premise that he is starting from. Because to Paul, the Lord is near. The kingdom of God is near because of what Jesus has done. There is a, what you see here happening is that there is a connection between the resurrection and the joy that he talks about. Um, some of you uh, might know that Anna, our other daughter, uh, that, that is short for Anastasia, which comes from the Greek word for resurrection. So just uh, as they do uh, um, in our kids, those, those concepts are twin concepts for Paul. They go together uh, in the way that we talk about them. Through Jesus, Paul has gotten a glimpse of where the world is headed. That is what Paul means when he says the Lord is near. The world to come is near. The time when love and mercy and justice and peace will destroy everything that opposes them is near. It is not necessarily just a feeling like that the Lord is, you know, proximate to you. It is a recognition of the world. It's being able to see the world in a way that you can't just see with your eyes. It is a way of seeing the world that occurs when you've had an experience with the risen Jesus. 
The, the uh, connection between joy and something that lasts beyond this world, I think, has been articulated um, very well by uh, a couple different philosophers uh, over time. So one example is a, is a contemporary uh, American um, philosopher, uh, and uh, Nicholas Wolsterstoff, who describes joy as that emotion which happens when I care about reality being a certain way, and I judge that it is that way. You, you understand what the kingdom of God looks like. You know that it is breaking into this world, and you get joy when you see the kingdom of, the kingdom of God in your midst. And joy is recognizing that that is true. Uh, probably a more famous philosopher that many of you may recognize, Nietzsche, actually uh, describes this concept as well when he says, all joy wants eternity, wants deep deep eternity. In other words, a core part of joy is being able to recognize something that can last forever. There is a, uh, there's a um, speech that Martin Luther King gave. It's actually the, um, the day before he died, uh, the day before he was assassinated, where he actually shares a reflection uh, in that speech that very much captures the, these themes that, that we're trying to talk about, where you know, the idea that Paul has seen something, and that's the source of his joy no matter what is happening. So maybe you got a chance to, to see, um, to reflect on this kind of passage this last week, as uh, many of us observed Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But here's, here's what he says. Um, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount in this way uh, can also be like a, a great source uh, of inspiration. It often was in the way that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about it as well. So there is, uh, this is one of, uh, a compiled set of one of Jesus' most famous teachings that occurs uh, early uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, uh, the, this is how it shows up. Uh, in many translations. Um, you may have noticed, too, that there is an effort for some translators to play around with the wording blessed um, out of a, like a, a goodwill effort to you know, acknowledge that uh, blessed is not like a normal everyday language that we use anymore. So they're trying to like, capture, like, what does it mean for, uh, for Jesus in this context to say, blessed are the poor in spirit? or those who mourn, or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, those who are merciful, um, those who are peacemakers. What does it mean for them to be blessed? There are some translations that will, they will try, like play around with it, or some interpreters will say, really, I think what, what they're trying to say is happy are those who do these things. And I think that that's, that's I, I understand where that's trying to come from, but I think that just 
raises a lot of the challenges that we talk about, uh, talked about earlier um, in this discussion, where then it seems to orient this around like a feeling that you can have. So if you are a peacemaker, you should feel happy. And that's, I don't think that's really what's, what's going on uh, around here. I think there are some interpreters who've said that probably a better way, a shorthand to think about when, when you hear phrases like this is to say, better off. Are. So better off are the poor in spirit. Better off are those who mourn. Better off are those who, meek, who are meek. Now, that probably doesn't make it easy for, easier for you because then you would say, like, how on earth are those people better off? In this context, it's literally talking about people who will uh, experience great pain and agony for doing those things. History has not been kind to peacemakers, right? So then this raises the question of, like, okay, what, what actually is going on? Here's the thing. This, uh, uh, this uh, sermon, this statement that Jesus is making, uh, notice that it's not a command. It's not a suggestion or a recommendation for you to follow. It's not something that Jesus is saying, all right, listen to me and aspire to this. This is a statement. This is a declaration about the way the world is. And it's an audacious one at that. And the only reason it would make any sense to someone like Paul or someone like us is because of our experience with the risen Jesus. I think that when I was uh, trying to like, wrap this up and come offer my own uh, definition of joy that I think was, was short, kind of encapsulates the themes that, that we uh, have talked about, um, we actually preached through joy as a series, like many years ago uh, at Spark. And during that time, uh, in, in one of the talks, I shared a, a haiku in the spirit of sharing beautiful poems that are, are reflections. Uh, so, the, you know, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a poet, but, you know, you can't control how the Lord speaks to you, right? These, sometimes these things happen. You just got to write it down when you can. But, uh, but really, I was coming up with the definition and noticed that it fit the syllabic structure uh, of a haiku. But here's, here's how I boiled it down at that time. Joy is recognizing that something from the world to come is right here, right now. I think that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about having joy. So every time we sacrifice our power or privilege or money or resources or our bodies out of the joy that comes in making the world here and now more like the world to come, not a single one of those efforts will ever be meaningless, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes says. In fact, the worlds to come will be defined by loving acts of restoration like that. Everything else may fade away, but remember, the fruit of the spirits got eternal roots, and it produces fruit that lasts forever. We're now at our time together where we think about the joy that Jesus has brought us and the ushering in of the world to come. One of the most powerful symbols that we have to recognize the world to come is a table. It's us coming together in harmony. Um, and in, from a tradition that Jesus himself established with his disciples, it's a, it's a tradition that we uh, have carried on as well where scripture says, for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, 
Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as always, regardless of your disposition or what you're experiencing in life, all are welcome at Jesus' table.